0: He tēnei nā te reo irirangi o
3: having spent three days on the boat with engine noise and sounds of the the waves it's just wonderful to actually turn the engines off and, and uh, once we're at anchor and and then the, the sounds of the island start to, to hit you. You're, you're aware that you're, you're no longer on land. You've arrived at a sub-antarctic island and, and there's wildlife all around you.
0: Kia ora, ngao mai haramai ki te hurahanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko and cannon Roger Gibson is one of the crew members of the expedition Yacht the Avoi, often tasked with bringing researchers to and from New Zealand's subantarctic islands to do their work.
3: We're getting pretty close to the Antipodes. We're about 50 miles off and um, waiting to see if it might appear on the radar fairly shortly, but can't see anything. It's, it's all fog at the moment. Um, but the excitement's starting to build.
0: <laughs> the Antipodes Islands, our destination. Volcanic, remote, uninhabited. A national nature reserve that you need a permit to land on. Part of the incredible set of sub-Antarctic islands that are within New Zealand's territory.
3: All the uh, sub-Antarctic islands are different. To me, the Antipodes is all about the albatrosses, really. it's, it's pretty. New. As you get closer to the island, you start to see more birds. And, um, and arriving at the island, you, you can see them all coming out to sea in the morning. We've seen plenty of albatrosses on the
0: journey out here, many different species, but now it's the Antipodean albatross that calls the main Antipodes island home that dominates. The islands are 860 kilometres southeast of Rakiura Stewart Island, where we had to sit for a day and a half to wait out a storm. So, after almost five full days on the boat, signs of land ahoy are much welcome.
2: It's somewhere shrouded in the mist at the moment, but it's come up on the radar, so we know we are getting closer. And we've seen a few of those um, land-type birds, like some penguins in the last half hour and skua, so we must be getting close.
0: This is Gemma Welch, biodiversity ranger for the Department of Conservation. Normally Gemma and her colleague Erin Patterson are based in the Chatham Islands, but as Erin tells me, they're here to do a specific task.
4: We're going to be doing a full island sweep, um, grid searching back and forth and counting every single um, Antipodean albatross nest that we come across, doing a population survey.
0: Is this your first time on the Antipodes?
4: Yeah, I have never been this far south so I'm pretty excited, nervous slash excited. I think there's going to be a lot of things that will blow my mind down there but um, I'm a, a bit of a self-proclaimed um, plant geek so I'm looking forward to buzzing out on all, all the mega herbs and things that I've never seen before. Oh, I'm delighted you're
0: a key. Yeah, I feel
4: like there's enough in the world. That's right. I I agree with that. They're hard to find sometimes.
0: There are some cool plants. Yeah.
4: Yeah, mega herbs. I I have dreams about um romping through gardens of mega herbs. So I hope I can live one of those dreams in the next
2: six weeks. <laughs> and what about you, Gemma? Um, well, I I am a self-proclaimed seabird nerd. So um, so I'm just really looking forward to all of the new and some old friends um, but mostly new seabirds that we're going to see out there, Um, particularly the albatross, the Antipodean albatross and especially the light-mantled sooty albatross. Especially them? Why especially them? I don't know, they're they're just, they're just a beautiful bird, they're kind of a sooty grey all over with a slightly darker head and wings and then these striking kind of white eyeliner around their eyes, so yeah they're, they're just really stunning.
0: In their day jobs, Gemma and Aaron work a lot together on the Chatham's predator-free offshore islands Mangare and Rangitira. They got shoulder tapped for this antipodes work because it requires a few things. People
4: that can live in remote places and, you know, handle working and living in uh, close proximity to each other and um, not drive each other crazy, which I think we tick those boxes. Um, Yeah, so I think it is quite nice to know someone on this sort of a trip beforehand
0: and it's a big responsibility as well right because there's no if something goes wrong you can't get picked up by a helicopter directly you don't need
4: to remind us about that (laughs) 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 yeah no it's i mean we we always try to be safe um in our work in these sorts of places so yeah we're very mindful of that fact we we don't have um rescue helicopters on the chathams either so it's kind of the same same but a bit more extreme i
0: suppose Ah, that nervous laughter. Crossing fingers and touching wood. It's true though, these islands are extremely remote, which makes them really special, but also very difficult to get to and work on. It's madness to think about now, but at some stage people tried to farm them. It didn't last long. Even the logistics of getting on and off can be tricky. Here's Roger
3: again. We don't have nice sandy beaches. We've got a rock platform which is a wee distance from the hut which is great for landing people on, it's a nice safe location but the problem is no good for actually offloading equipment because it's, it's quite a big carry from there to the hut. So closer to the hut uh, is a cove and we rig up a flying fox up on the cliff above the cove and we come and park the dinghy underneath the flying fox um, and they'll lower a the net down to us, we'll load into it and then they'll haul it back up. Pretty hard work um, it can take a few hours if there's a, uh, a lot of equipment to shift and it takes three people to uh, on the top of the cliff to haul it up so you, you really earn your um, breakfast by the time you finish that. But sometimes we just can't, can't use that cove if the swell's too high and the winds on shore It's not safe to go in there and we just have to hold off. There's there's been times when we just haven't been able to unload and we've had to remain at anchor for days, waiting for the conditions to come right.
0: As we get closer, the mist starts to roll off the hills, revealing the main Antipodes Island. We anchor offshore with a tall cliff face in front of us, caves at the bottom, which echo the sounds of the penguin colony at the water's edge. Behind us is the second largest island, Bollins Island, all sharp angles as it juts out of the sea. This time, the team is lucky. It was just a wait of one night for the swell to ease. The next morning, after sunrise, Gemma and Erin are brought ashore with all their gear to join their colleagues and start their albatross work. The Avoe is also on pickup duty, so all the equipment and rubbish of the team of scientists coming off the island is brought on board. Four researchers from the Tawaki project have been here for the last six weeks. They've been studying erect crested and eastern rockhopper penguins. Amongst them is Robin Long. I catch up with her on the island for a quick tour, and she explains to me what it's been like to stay there.
5: It's such a special experience to live in a place that it's still certainly influenced by human impacts, like the albatrosses are declining, the rockhopper penguins are declining, and that's almost certainly humans' fault. But still, you're out in this ecosystem that is so much more real than elsewhere in the world. At night, it's never quiet. The penguin colony never sleeps. There's always petrels flying overhead and calling. It's, it's just amazing here. I love it.
0: We're standing about 100 metres from the hut on the island, which is quite near the coast, and the penguin colonies you can hear in the background. There's a cut track that we've been following, but it's like nothing I've ever seen before.
5: So Antipodes has some of the, the deepest non-forest vegetation I've ever walked through. This cut track here is very nice because it's as wide as we are and either side of us the vegetation is a bit higher than my head. Other parts on the island there are obviously no cut tracks and the vegetation is just sometimes higher than your head. And and they're just big tussocks. Yep, we've got some grasses on this side, some sedges on this side and the really cool thing about these is that as they grow they gradually form trunks underneath them so they end up almost like a small palm tree and... That means that when you're walking through them, sometimes you can jump from the top of one to the next and then you fall down in between them and then you're up to your eyeballs suddenly.
0: I imagine that it's quite difficult to actually negotiate when there isn't a track. It can be very difficult. Along the
5: tops of the island, it's not too bad. The vegetation's more like ankle or maybe knee-deep. Um, but around the coast, which is obviously where we need to go to get to the penguins, it gets increasingly difficult. It can be very, very frustrating with a pack.
0: And as well as these... like. Big, gnarly tussock things, which yeah, you're over your head, up to my shoulder. I, I can imagine trying to wade through these is intense, but are there also megaherb fields on antipodes? Yep, we've got some giant
5: anisotomies here, and uh, pleurophyllum as well, which is a daisy with purple flowers, kind of looks like a cabbage when you get up into the central plains of the island, it looks like there's this giant cabbage patch of those daisies with the anisotomies spread through them, which are a type of carrot. They're really, really pretty. So where are we standing right now? At the moment we're standing um, kind of between Hutt Cove and Anchorage Bay. And then in Anchorage Bay is our main study colony of penguins, which we can hear in the
0: background. All right, shall we go down and, and see the penguins? Yep. Just a short stroll down the track, we get to the edge of a cliff overlooking a Stony Bay rocky platforms up from the high tide mark are covered in black and white bodies with spiky yellow crests. Most of these are erect crested penguins, though there are a few of the smaller Eastern rockhopper penguins clustered together near the base of the cliff.
5: So this is our main study colony. And in this colony we have microchipped all 39 of the chicks from this season. And that way, hopefully in future years, we'll be able to find some of those chicks again by scanning their microchips and from that we'll get some idea of fledgling survival which is one of the many, many things that has never been studied in these penguins before.
0: When you say many, many things we just don't know a huge amount about them?
5: Uh, Yeah, so these penguins are the least researched penguins in the world at the moment.
0: And that's due to their remote
5: breeding sites? Um, Yeah, it's very difficult to get here. It's difficult to get enough money when you're a scientist to study a bird that this that's this far away yeah just everything about it is difficult
0: and so the chicks are the
5: fluffier ram ones the chicks are the ones with some fluff left yeah um, some of them are completely fledged though but they're a much bluer shade of black than the adults and the crests are much smaller but yeah the it's cloudy now, but on a sunny day, they're quite strikingly bluer than the adults, which is quite convenient when we're trying to count them.
0: I mean, do they form a nest? It looks like they're just kind of hanging out on the rocks.
5: Not really. They do, to some extent, collect a few bits of tussock and a few rocks and bones of their less lucky relatives and kind of pile them up. Um, but mostly they would just sit on a piece of rock with their egg between their
0: feet. Robin and her colleagues have been busy. They've used drones to count penguin colonies on the island and done ground camps for nests too. They've also used dive loggers to track the penguins' daily food commutes and satellite tags to track where they go across longer time periods. All of this research and what they're learning will be in an upcoming Hour Changing Worlds episode, so listen out for that one. Today, there are other island inhabitants to introduce you to, such as the flubbery bodies lathing around on the rocks, once all but wiped out due to the activity of sealers, making their comeback.
5: They were certainly hunted pretty close to extinction. Um, And yeah, now there's heaps. Around Christmas, they started all having pups out on Reef Point. There's suddenly tiny baby pups everywhere, which is very cute. And then since then, there's just been more and more on all the beaches every day.
0: And I can see what looks like a very large, moving rock as well.
5: Yep, yeah, this is also a haunt for elephant seals. So typically there will be a few giant elephant seal sausages lined up on the beach. Sometimes the teenage males are down here fighting, sometimes out in the water as well. And they'll also haul out in Hut Cove, where you landed, right around there. There was a very, very fat one this morning.
0: I did see one there when we were landing and it had really kind of bulgy eyes. It's got very intimidating eyes.
5: Yeah and they're red around the iris which is slightly creepy. What an amazing
0: place. And then out in the water?
5: These are giant petrels. They seem to hang out there most of the time. Any given day if it's not particularly stormy there's about a hundred giant petrels sitting just offshore like a flock of ducks. And. I wonder if they're waiting for our penguin chicks to go to sea for the first time and try to catch them when they can't swim very well and have a wee snack.
0: It's just brimming with wildlife. And look, if you're not yet impressed with the several types of albatrosses and the penguins and the cool plants and seals, well then the Antipodes has got another ace up its sleeve. Some local pranksters. So... Ah, there's a parakeet behind you. (laughs) There
5: is, it's trying to break into the toilet Do they do that often? They try to, and we try to keep them out So there's two types of parakeet here which I think is amazing for such a remote island There's the Antipodean parakeet which is the larger one and the very cheeky It's basically like a small kia Um, and they are one of few parrots in the world that eat meat as well so you can often see them chewing on dead penguin chicks, dead seals anything delicious like that, but also tussock and seeds and stuff. And we have to be careful not to leave windows open in the hut if we go outside because they'll come in and investigate stuff. When you're sitting on the toilet, suddenly one will pop its head around the door and see if we can come in.
0: And that one that was just uh, there on the toilet trying to get in, which one was that? Is it the Antipodean one?
5: That was Antipodean, yeah. So the Rysheks, they have a red crown although apparently they're more related to the yellow-crowned parakeet. Um, And they're much shyer and a little bit smaller, and they don't eat meat. They'll hang out and eat seeds and tussocks and stuff like that, but no dead seals.
0: It just seems really unusual to see... Well, first when I landed and there was a pivot on the cove, and then now to see parakeets when all around you're just looking at tussock.
5: Yep, Antipodes is that place where you can see an albatross... Swooping above a penguin with a pivot beside it and a parakeet next to that. It's special.
0: You can feel it. Which is why, in the winter of 2016, Doc undertook a massive logistical project with one goal in mind. To rid the main Antipodes island of house mice.
1: We took a ship and three helicopters, a team of 13 people and eradicated mice from the site.
0: This is Steve Horn, manager of Doc's national eradication team. Sounds easy when he summarises it like that, but it was a massive undertaking, and an important one.
1: There were up to 150 mice per hectare, so over 200,000 mice on that reasonably small island, um, chewing their way through about half a tonne of invertebrate mass and other protein each day, so having a pretty big impact on the ecosystem. We are motivated to remove them for the current impacts, but also the potential future impacts on some other Um, important seabird islands around the world we've seen mice develop the behavior of um, preying on large albatross species their chicks during winter and also adults as well and so we've got the antipodean wandering albatross down there as one of the endemic species amongst others Um, and so that type of impact is pretty important for us to protect against not to mention the impacts on other species so there's nine uh, species of burrowing petrel on antipodes and we had evidence that at least three of them were being suppressed by mice just through comparing their populations and breeding on Antipodes versus um, some of the mouse-free islands um, nearby. Antipodes surrounding it, so part of the Antipodes group, but they had uh, they were pest-free at the time.
0: So the way to get rid of mice is by aerial spread of rodent bait. If you're on the mainland, no problem. Chuck up a helicopter and get flying and dropping. But remember, we're talking about 800 plus kilometres away from New Zealand mainland, without a sheltered harbour or beach to land on.
1: It involved organising a ship where we could put three helicopters debladed inside the belly of the ship and um, took our team down there. We built a temporary helicopter hangar on the island, and over the course of about 10 days, um, flew the helicopters, re-bladed them on the ship, flew them on shore, one of the helicopters lifted one of the other helicopters on shore, one of the small ones, and um, set up camp and waited for the weather. So um Tactic weather, as you can imagine, is um, reasonably challenging to fly helicopters, finding you know good opportunities. And so it was a matter of biding our time. And um, we managed to get two applications of bait done over the course of the next six weeks. And then we packed up our camp, took down all of our temporary infrastructure, put it all back on the ship, which returned and uh, went home. So, yeah, a very large logistical exercise.
0: Winter is the best time to do this kind of baiting operation with mice because they're not breeding. So the weather played a massive role. It was far from a cruisy island stay for those involved.
1: We had uh, the hut um, that housed six people and then the rest of us were in tents and occasionally the storms were so big they were washing spray from um, the waves hitting the, the cove 20 metres up over top of our tents and splashing down with some, you know, quite some force to the point where I got up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night one night and I got completely drenched from such an event um, just in, in the extreme winds. So, um, you know, incredibly invigorating. You know, the wildlife is incredible. It's incredible at night time with the seabirds coming in, but the weather is also something to behold and the, just the power of nature in, in those places.
0: After all, the careful planning, the teamwork to get everything ashore, the midnight toilet trip dowsings, the weather dodging and skill piloting to apply the bait next was an agonising two years before a team went down with species dogs to check whether they'd been successful.
1: Yeah, it was a nerve-wracking wait, <laughs> I must admit. Um, we'd had a few indications. The albatross scientists visit annually each summer, so each summer it was actually nice to have a little bit of a, a feel they haven't seen anything. They they were doing a little bit of looking in their day-to-day work um, with tracking tunnels. but. Yeah, when they when the team went down and did the comprehensive search, um, yeah, I was quite nervous every day, just waiting for a phone call to say, "Hey, um, we found something." But um, but they didn't, and it worked. And it is an amazing achievement when you when you're there and you look at um, the expanse of Tussock Tussock Tops and the cliffs. Um, I remember when we first arrived, just getting into the cove, sitting in the dinghy, and one of the first things I noticed was a mouse running up a vertical rock face, um, and, and they, they are living in amongst those cliff ledges and, and the little bits of vegetation where the seabirds are breeding and that sort of thing. So we had to get bait absolutely everywhere on that island, and it's a real testament to the skill of the, the pilots and, and the whole team involved to have um, achieved that, particularly in the you know, the typically windy conditions and um, uh, the, the, you know just the challenges of, of being there.
0: And the results for the wildlife?
1: There was a fly that um, the albatross scientists in their first summer back after the baiting had happened, um, the flies had inundated the hut in, on a sunny day, sunny day in the sub-Antarctic, and they'd never had that before, and we were worried for a little while that we'd introduced a blowfly of some description. Um, so we caught some, and they, they were sent back to New Zealand. But no, it was a an endemic um, fly that just hadn't been seen in abundance before, so there was a huge pulse an in invertebrate life, some moths, uh, some huge caterpillars that were really prevalent, that again hadn't really been seen very often. So, once those mice disappeared, the biomass of invertebrates took off, and it took a little while before some of the insectivorous bird species, such as the pipits and snipe, sort of got on top of, uh, so came a bit of a balance between the birds and the invertebrates again. And, and um, those invertebrates are still there, but, but they're much more in check with the birds as their population's rebounded as well. So there's been over a three times increase in the population of snipe. So there's an endemic subspecies of the subantarctic snipe on Antipodes Island. And the same with uh, the pipits that are there. They're an endemic subspecies as well.
0: Robin Long has also found evidence of this insect comeback.
5: So last year... When I was here, I was still doing my master's, which was on spiders back on the mainland. Um, But one of the professors in the department I was in studies beetles. So he asked me to look out for beetles here, and he actually did a a big entomological survey back in 1998. So he was really interested to see what would be around post-mouse eradication. So partway through the trip, I was feeling bad for not having looked for beetles yet. So I walked outside the hut, I turned over the first piece of wood I could find and underneath was a beetle. And I sent him a photo and it turned out that that was the first live specimen of that species ever seen on main Antipodes. So he had found them on Bollins when he was here, which was always mouse free. But on Antipodes he only found like chewed up remains. And then this year I've been requested by Doc to collect some invertebrates and I've managed to find a few of those. And they are an undescribed species of Loxomeris beetle, which is the genus is elsewhere in the subantarctics but hopefully now they can finally be described.
0: That's amazing that like you turned the first piece of wood
5: that you turned over. (laughs) It was amazing. It took me weeks to find another one this year and I eventually found them down in the south of the island at our other penguin site amongst the penguin colony.
0: With the mice gone, the invertebrates can once again thrive supporting this entire unique ecosystem. Which is great, but how do you keep it that way?
5: So there's a pretty rigorous quarantine process to come here. Before coming, we have to clean all of our gear, getting out every piece of dirt, every seed, any tiny thing that's in the corner of a seam of a pocket, which it's incredible how much stuff is inside your clothes when you look through them with tweezers. And then having done that, we go through the quarantine office with Doc in Invercargill and they check everything again and approve it. And then everything is sealed up, so all of our food is sealed in buckets, which is also waterproof for convenience. And once we arrive, we bring everything inside the hut, shut all the doors and windows and open everything there in case a mouse or a spider or a beetle or anything
0: like that jumps
5: out. And once we're sure that everything's clear, then we can open the
0: doors. And then in terms of the island in case, in that like exceptional circumstance that something has escaped, is there kind of a tracking mechanism across the island
5: yeah so around the hut and up the hill we have two lines of 10 tracking tunnels and these are particularly for rodents they have a card with an ink pad that we place in for a couple of nights when we first arrive and theoretically a mouse will run through that and leave its footprints all we get is parakeet footprints they love them they chew on them there's footprints everywhere We have started not leaving them out for as long because otherwise by the time we come back to them they're completely covered in parakeet footprints and you wouldn't even know if there was a mouse.
0: (laughs) Okay, it sounds like the parakeets are the hooligans of the island.
5: (laughs) Very much so. And then this year we started also having trail cameras under the hut and the castaway depot to look for... I think they're set off by motion so if a mouse goes past that would also set them off. I thought there was a mouse but it was a snipe. (laughs) Oh, phew. I've done that a few times.
0: (laughs) Because so far, so good, right? There's not been anything has shown up on the tracking tunnels uh, except for um, parakeet footprints. Parakeets, yeah. And uh, and yeah, so far, so good on the the camera as well. Yeah. The five island groups in New Zealand's sub-Antarctic territory... The Snares Islands, Bounty Islands, Antipodes Islands, Auckland Islands and Campbell Island together are listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Area, containing some of the world's least modified islands. But one of these things is not like the other.
1: So Auckland Island, the biggest island and the most, um, the biologically richest island of New Zealand's sub-Antarctic region, is the only one with pests remaining. And it makes up over two-thirds of the area of New Zealand's subantarctic islands. So it's a really important one.
0: Pest removal and eradication has been taking place in the subantarctic islands for decades. Some islands within the Auckland Island group are pest-free, such as Enderby Island, from which rabbits and mice were removed in 1993, and Adams Island, which never had pests. Both are vitally important sites for seabird breeding. But on the main Auckland Islands, the remaining undesirables are pigs, mice and cats. As a result of, as Steve puts it, the incredible cultural and social history of these islands that sits alongside their amazing conservation value.
1: Polynesians actually had been going to Auckland Islands as evidence of their presence from the 13th century to the 14th century, so pretty early the first Europeans arrived in 1806. Um, Captain Bristow saw all the seals there and thought, right, I'll come back and launch a sealing endeavour. And they brought pigs with them in 1807, um, presumably as a food source, and released them on the island. And it was it was encouraged to release livestock on places like this. Um, later in the 19th century in response to castaways from shipwrecks and, and trying to provide some some um, sustenance for them. So it was common practice to release livestock. Um, so the pigs took, but they would have been incredibly hard to, to hunt. Um, and then mice and cats um, arrive with people because they are on ships. Um, there was a township uh, established for a short period of time at the north end of the island in the mid-19th century as well and um, presumably they took cats with them.
0: So, you know, they're there through no fault of their own, but...
1: Those three species collectively kind of don't leave any chance for the native wildlife of Auckland Island. The pigs are uh, pretty good at turning up the soil and um, the vast fields of megaherbs that you'd expect on the plateau on the top of the island amongst the tussock fields as pretty much non-existent. They're also pretty good at getting into some reasonably steep places, and they basically inhibit the white-capped albatross from um, successfully nesting. And they will prey on the eggs, um, push the birds off, and and consume those eggs. And they will um, ha- similarly harass species like hoiho um, uh, yellow-eyed penguin um, when they're nesting as well. And so, yeah, pr- pretty destructive type of Pests to have in such a place. The cat's pretty destructive to the bird life down there, and they can range a long way. So we collared some cats to see what their home range size was, and the smallest we found was just over 120 hectares, and the largest was over 6,000 hectares.
0: Between 2018 and 2021, Steve led a team doing trials and looking at different methods that might work to eradicate these three pests. They published a feasibility study in 2021 with a plan.
1: The scale presents a huge challenge for the mouse operation. So trying to spread bait over um, nearly 50,000 hectares with the type of weather you'd expect down there and in winter is almost impossible unless you have a very large number of helicopters and you know some really good days of weather in a row. So um, we actually trialled spreading bait in the summer period when mice are breeding, so there's an increased risk from the breeding, but we get the daylight and slightly better weather to um, be able to get bait on the ground. So we did a non-toxic trial with baits that had a a biomarker in them that glowed under UV light on a 1,000 hectare peninsula, and then we sampled mice across that peninsula uh, to see whether they'd consume bait and... All but three mice of our well over 200 mice sample had consumed bait and the three that didn't were um, small juveniles that had probably just emerged from the nest and been caught in our traps before they'd had a chance to. So that was really encouraging result and we'd um, complete two applications of bait in um, in our approach on Auckland Island because of the timing. For pigs we'd be using... Um, automated feeders, so modified duck feeders effectively to try and draw pigs into certain areas. And where we get them feeding habitually off feeders, we would then set up corral-style traps and then using thermal aids uh, to, to shoot pigs from the air by helicopter and then following on with ground hunting, using people and dogs to search the whole island. And we'd anticipate we'd need to do at least two um, really intensive sweeps of the island to be sure of that result. And for cats, we would be looking to use uh, novel cat bait, so a meat sausage bait, um, toxic bait, that we can apply and um, and a grid of cameras across the island to detect whether there's any survivors. Um, and ideally those cameras can process images on board and tell us whether they've seen a cat by... Um, satellite connection and then we can react to try and follow up on those survivors as quickly as possible and again dogs will be quite important in that um, that verification phase of, of a cat eradication across that scale so again it'll be a huge logistical undertaking managing people on such a site it will involve a lot of planning a lot of infrastructure to be put in place and again removed at the end of a program so um, that, that's a huge undertaking in itself.
0: The eradication of mice from the main Antipodes island costs just under $3.6 million. But this is a different beast. All up, the feasibility study estimates it will cost $78 million across eight years. That's allowing time for the infrastructure to be put in place, for successive eradications of pigs, mice and then cats, and then to remove all those things that they've built. Now Steve says... It's about finding the dollars to get the job done.
1: We've got this amazing endemic wildlife down there, which has been severely impacted for over 200 years by pests that humans have taken to this site. So there's this of of New Zealand wildlife that we are responsible for. And we are at the point now where we've got the tools, we've just about got the tools to undo the damage. And the benefits of the project will be permanent so yeah it's a large amount of money but you know once that job is done that's it a decision to go will be basically made on the basis of coming up with that funding um, to complete the job there's people working on how we get that money and there's interest from philanthropy both here in New Zealand and overseas as well Uh, and yeah I think the work that's been done on the project puts it in good stead to come to fruition so you know, we'll surely let people know once we do get to that point uh, in time where the, the money's available and things start happening.
0: Thanks to those I spoke to for this episode. Doc Rangers Gemma Welsh, Erin Pattison and Steve Horn. Robin Long of the Tawiki Project and Roger Gibson, a Voy crew member. Thanks also to Stephen Kafka and Mary Watson of the Avoi, to Thomas Mattern and Ursula Ellenberg of the Tawaki Project, and to the staff of Doc Invercargill for help with quarantine and permitting. Keep an ear out for related episodes coming up. This is not the last you've heard of antipodean albatrosses and erect crested penguins. We'll be delving into the lives of these two amazing birds in a few weeks' time. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Phil Vine and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Mark Chesterman and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld, where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter. And if you've got feedback for us, you can email ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Té Kwe koe i Thanks so much for listening. Ko clark and Kananaho, Have a great week. Kia pai, te wiki.